Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, and welcome to the show. This year is the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. And here on this 20th official all-state participation Martin Luther King Day, <laughs> it's very complicated history, we decided we would present to you a woman whose life intersects both things. She was a civil rights activist and a proponent of women's suffrage. We couldn't think of anyone more perfect to bring to you on this day. And so, on with the show. And here's your 30-second summary. Mary Terrell was one of the very first African-American women to graduate from college and rose to prominence during the battles for universal suffrage and civil rights. Though her heart might have been made of gold, her will was made of iron, with speeches that were full of fire and a push in the back for all of us to get out there and do some good. We have a responsibility to lift each other up as we climb, she said, in order to make the world a better place for everyone. The end. Let's talk about Mary Church Terrell. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1892, Ellis Island opened as a U.S. immigration station. The first public basketball game was held. The modern escalator, the clothes dryer, the toothpaste tube, and the matchbook were all patented. Conservation organization the Sierra Club was founded. The first macadamia nut trees were planted in Hawaii. Lizzie Borden may or may not have taken an axe and given her father and stepmother many wax. Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite debuted, and John Philip Sousa resigned from the U.S. Marine Corps to start his own band, one that combined military, beer hall, and orchestra music. And in 1892, a lynching in her hometown sent Mary Church Terrell into a life as a civil rights activist and suffragist. Mary Eliza Church was born on September 23, 1863, in Memphis, Tennessee, the first of the two children of Robert Reed Church and Louisa Ayers Church, though Papa did have a son and a daughter by a second marriage. Both Papa and Mama were former slaves. How welcome this child of theirs was, born the year of the Emancipation Proclamation. However, she was born in Tennessee, and the text of the Emancipation Proclamation is weird. If you've never read the entire thing, there's a lot of exceptions. And overall, it only applied to those areas of the country in which the Union was not in the ascendancy. Tennessee did vote to secede. It was the last state to go. It was a very divided place. And the West, where Memphis was, was very Union. And then there was a gradient of support to the Confederacy as you move to the right on the map. Much to the dismay of the people in eastern Tennessee who tried to create their own state, eastern Tennessee, but were unsuccessful. However, at the time of the Emancipation Proclamation, Tennessee was firmly under Union control, being ruled by a military governor. So slaves in Tennessee were not freed until October 24th, 1864. What I'm wondering then is, were Mama and Papa already free at that point? Mm -hmm. Because much is made of, you know, she was the child of former slaves. And they were former slaves, but... Do you know what I'm saying? Were they free oh. at the time of her birth? Was she free at the time of her birth? Yeah, that is unclear. History is really fuzzy. Papa, who was, quote, so fair 
that no one would have supposed he had a drop of African blood in his veins was, as you might guess, the son of his owner. His father was Captain Charles Church, and while Captain Grandpa never legally acknowledged Robert as his son and didn't educate him, when Robert was 12, his mother, Emmeline, died and Robert went to work on the boats that Captain Grandpa owned. These are luxury steamboats going from New Orleans to Memphis to St. Louis and back again. Get barges out of your mind. Put something luxurious in it. And that's where Robert started to work as soon as his mother died. Captain Church allowed his enslaved son to work on them and keep his wages as if he were a human being, but did not give him his freedom. So... I just don't understand the dichotomy in the minds of slave owners in this regard. I, I just don't get it. And I never will. This person is simultaneously your closest blood relative and your personal property. So uh -uh. there it is. Over his teenage years, Papa worked his way up until he'd become what was called a procurement agent, the mm, supply chain coordinator, I guess we might call it now, <laughs> yeah. for the whole fleet of boats. And although... Papa never did attend one single day of school. He had taught himself to read mostly by reading newspapers and he had street smarts. Oh, did he have street smarts? And he applied his considerable natural intelligence to his business pursuits. Mama Louisa doesn't have a whole lot of details available to us. We know that she was also of mixed race. We know that she was a former slave, that she was a lady's maid who had learned to read, write, and speak French. So to me, that says that she's held as a very special um, place of, I know she's a slave still, but a place of honor in the family to have learned all those things. I just don't know if we are looking at another child of the master. Mm-hmm. Uh, her own mother had been raised from childhood in the house, and her mother was a, you know, this is grandma, was a favored slave that everyone called Aunt Liza. Mama had been brought up with the master's daughter, Miss Laura, who was sent mm -hmm. to New York to buy her fancy things before she got married. And the master had given Mama and Papa a pretty extravagant wedding. But Mary Terrell has said specifically that don't be fooled. The existence of any favored slave does not excuse the fact that these same people sold children away from their parents. Mm -hmm. Right. The state of being of most of them was not this. Right. That could be the first line of this whole thing because it really sets the tone for Mary's life. It does. So Mama opened a hair salon in Memphis, which Mary Terrell called a hair store. <laughs> I, I mean, maybe it was a hair store, literally, because current fashion required a lot of switches, as they called it. This is the mm -hmm. era where women had hair receivers, where you put all the brushings from your brush in a little jar and kept it so you could make these rat pads and fake curls out of your own hair. Uh, Louisa was the first African-American woman in the South to own her own beauty salon. And her clients were elite white women in town, very elite, as in when the Grand Duke of Russia came to town, the ladies that were going to the ball in his honor flocked Louisa's salon. So that's her clientele. Pretty good. <laughs> At the beginning, Mama was the breadwinner. It was Mama's money that bought the family's first house. So Papa, newly married, opened a saloon and maybe a house of negotiable affection or two. 
<laughs> Let us draw a veil, which he began to parlay into other businesses and investments all over town. He became quite a known figure in Memphis. And so it was that he was likely a specific target when a race riot erupted, when our subject, who was actually called Molly by her family, so we will also call her Molly during her childhood, was only two years old. There had been an altercation between some white policemen who were taunting or otherwise harassing a group of black soldiers who had just come back from service to the Union during the Civil War. And some women and children were there. They were all sort of celebrating that the soldiers were back. One of the officers waving his weapon around shot himself in the leg. Yes, that is how this whole thing started. And this was, of course, blamed on the black men. And the result was three days of extreme violence against the entire black population of Memphis. Every black church, every black school in town was burnt. The mob would set fire to houses and force the residents to stay inside. Black women were assaulted. Black men were killed. Someone came into Papa's saloon and shot him in the back of the head, intending likely to kill him, of course, but he survived. And he carried that scar physical and mental, by the way, for the rest of his life. He was left with a deep, deep hole in his head and a violent and hair-trigger temper, according to his daughter, and a nearly complete lack of fear. I guess if you've been through this, what are you going to do? Talk about bravery. He testified against the police and against the white men that were doing this mob action in the investigations for the riot. So talk about another target being put on him. That would change a person. Molly's family was relatively well off. There were servants in the house and employees working for both parents. And she had lots and lots of little friends, most of whom were German. So talk, 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 talk. You know, three and four-year-olds, how they are. But she did it in two languages. <laughs> Is that twice as annoying or half as annoying? You be the judge. I just don't know. But Papa, nevertheless took her everywhere like a little mascot. And this is what led to, unfortunately, the inevitable first experience of racism. When she was about five, Papa had taken her on a train trip. He had left her in the car where they had bought their first class tickets so that he could go off with the gentleman, perhaps cigars or brandy. While she was there by herself, the conductor came around, noticed her there, realized that she was not a white child, and told her that she needed to move back to the other car. He used terrible language towards her. And it was the first time that she had had this, this type of language in her life. Fortunately, her father, Mr. Uh, Hair Trigger Temper, also Mr. Expensive Suits, Expensive Shoes, showed up and the conductor backed down. <laughs> As she put it, this was the time in history when men had revolvers in their pockets <laughs> and Papa took care of it. But when they got home, Molly asked Mama why she'd gotten in trouble. She was being good. She was acting like a little lady. Just like you said, I didn't even look out the window. Molly remembers vividly the grief on her mother's face, which I imagine comes to everybody, even now. And, um, you know, she explained it away like you would with a little five-year-old. Sometimes men are just mean. Just forget about them. You know, that kind of thing. But that was the first incident but certainly not the last that she would ever experience. One more Papa story. Please indulge me before we move on to school. Please. Okay. <laughs> Papa had his mascot with him in the carriage when they pulled up beside a white man with an equally fine carriage and expensive uh, horses that they called high steppers. You know, they're 
for show. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they'd have revved their engines, frankly, if they only could. And there was a friendly wager called out across the street. And the race was on. The loser buys the winner a fancy dinner at the best place in town. And off they go. And Papa won. Hooray! And during the following celebration, at which I think half the street came in, five-year-old Molly experienced, quote, her first dissipation as she was served the same alcoholic drinks as the men were. And she was staggering around and was sick for days. And it was likely not this incident, but maybe the character of the man who allowed this to happen. Who knows why? <laughs> but unusually for the time, Molly's parents got divorced just about now. Papa, of course, wanted custody of Molly and her two-year-old brother. But the courts, very unusually for the time, gave the children to their mother. I don't know if maybe Papa's temperament had made itself too apparent. I don't know, because he was still in their lives. I mean, they lived nearby. Um, he would still see the kids. He was still a part of their lives. The whole thing was unusual. Her childhood was unusual. The divorce, you know, the child custody arrangement, the wealth, a very unusual upbringing for Molly. Molly did go to the Memphis public schools for a short time, but the segregated facilities were so substandard for colored children, their term, not ours, we may see it quite a bit, actually, that Mama took a bold step to send her daughter to Ohio, up north, so she could attend the Antioch College Model School, which she had heard about from some of her clients. Antioch College was the first college in America to have female faculty members who were paid and treated equally to male faculty members. It was a co-ed college and it had a policy right from the beginning that no potential student was going to be rejected based on their race. Fully a hundred years before they had to legally. Exactly. Exactly. So this sounds like a very good place for Molly. Their school motto is... Be ashamed to die until you have achieved some victory for humanity. Ah, oh, well, there's a powerful motto. Similar to in our last episode, Maria Montessori, the teacher's college had to have some lab rats. They had to have a school to observe, to teach in, to use as their educational tool. And so that is where she went. And her mama paid for her to stay with a black family called the Hunstons parents and four grown children who ran a hotel and an ice cream parlor. Incidentally, one of the very, very few families of color in the town at all. One of the sons had a candy store that he ran out of the house and our Molly was his best customer. She got allowance from Papa every month that she blew on candy. He gave her a $5 a month candy allowance. And that's $92 today, and that is way too much candy. <laughs> she was spoiled rotten materially her whole upbringing. Also, the family, the Hunstons, had an ice cream parlor that they ran seasonally. And not only did they let her ride out to get the cream from the farmers in the crack of dawn with the papa of the family, which was super fun, they also let her eat every bit of ice cream that tickled her fancy. So I don't know how she ended up with teeth. <laughs> by the way but she did unlike most of us end up with um sort of a hatred of ice cream so it all worked out <laughs> well this family other than the fact that they're pushing all the sugar on her she really loved living there she called them ma and pa and ma hunster actually introduced her to poetry they encouraged her to read she spent the summers there until she could travel by herself so she was there all year she really became part of their family 
She also loved school as only Hermione Granger and I do. I will tell you, she is that girl. Books are her friends. Mama paid a university student to teach Molly German, figuring that a respectable girl should know more than one language. And it was one of the greatest thrills of Molly's life to go into the dorms at college <laughs> to her teacher's room for her lessons. We have a university here called UMKC. It's walking distance. We used to go down there when Jet was little, and it was always a thrill to him to get a Coke at the student union and sit at a table with all the college students. It's the cheapest outing ever. I highly recommend it. <laughs> I get it, though. It's mysterious to see all these adults in training. They're not mothers. They're not fathers. They're not teachers. It's like, this is what's going to happen to you. It's very interesting to them. And one day, said Molly, all inspired, I'm going to live in a dorm. I'm going to go to college and be one of these women. And the ambition took hold early, perhaps originally fueled by the glamour of adulthood, like with my son. But as time went on, just by the serious example these women were showing her as to what was possible in her life. And again, we need to remind you, the school is integrated. So she's actually seeing who she could be in these college dorms. It's not like she's only seeing, you know, white women. There's black women as well. Not to say this was a completely prejudice-free zone. Her second major incident of racism actually happened in the cloakroom of this Antioch model school, supposedly the benchmark of all things integrationist. Some young ladies were at the mirror because they didn't have Instagram talking about how <laughs> awesome their hair was. This would have been selfies, but this was analog selfies. <laughs> My hair is so pretty today. You have the prettiest eyes, says one to the other person. What about me, says little Molly in the background. And the young ladies turned to her and said, you sure have a pretty black face. And then they had mean laughter and started pointing at her. And sh she was frozen. She was embarrassed and humiliated, but didn't completely understand why that should be a subject of like their faces. You know, she just mm -hmm. could not connect what was happening. And she yelled finally that she'd rather have a face like hers than like a pail of milk. And then she ran away. But she never forgot how that made her feel, um, kind of the end of her innocence about race right then. Coincidentally or not, she was sent to the public schools in the town after that, where she was the only girl of color in her whole grade. And there were not many in the whole school, not many black families in town at all, like I said, unlike Memphis. She learned in one of her history lessons about slavery, and she was able to connect things and realize that despite the fact that they never talked about it, her parents were slaves. And she said, I was stunned. I felt humiliated and disgraced. I was covered with confusion and shame at the thought. When I recovered my composure, I resolved that so far as this descendant of slaves was concerned, she would show those white girls and boys whose forefathers had always been free that she was their equal. At the time, I was the only colored girl in my class, and I felt I had to hold high the banner of my race. She was determined to be the best in everything she did as the representative of her race, which is a heavy burden, which I imagine is still born today at school or work or society in general. But at 12, Molly had to go to another school. Her options in Yellow Springs were over. So she moved out of the Hunster's house and moved north to a new town, Oberlin, Ohio, to continue her education. 
You know what? Third Love just does bras differently. Third Love believes that every woman deserves to feel comfortable and confident every single day with the right kind of support. They help all of us do just that. Third Love's bras are designed to fit us, not the other way around. And even though they have over 80 bra sizes, Third Love knows that the only one that matters is yours. So they make bras they believe in and back them with their perfect fit promise. You have 60 days to wash it and wear it. And if you don't love it, returns are always free. I've been wearing Third Love bras now for several years and my enthusiasm has not waned one bit. I cheated on my Third Love bras not that long ago and I regretted it about two hours into the day. I had an itchy tag and then there was the spillage. You know what I'm talking about, ladies. And you know what? A third love bra would make a very nice Valentine's gift. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners a 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash chicks now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. Spell it out. That's T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com slash chicks for 15% off today. When she got to Oberlin and boarded with another family, she excelled, as we'd expect. She started in eighth grade and then moved on to high school. She hovered at the top of her class and then made white and black friends that lasted a lifetime in this school. Oberlin itself was a very integrated town. It had been a stop on the Underground Railroad to get slaves up to Canada, which was just across Lake Erie. Even the family that she lived with was mixed race. It was no big deal for Molly to be on the streets. She saw other black people. She saw white people. And they did get along. It sounds almost, I mean, there's always going to be some racism, but it sounds like kind of a little pocket of utopia, You know, the town worked together to help slaves escaping. What are the chances that they would be able to find these bubbles, I guess, Mm -hmm. for her to grow up in? The town may have been really comfortable, but the house wasn't quite up to Papa's standards. He had sent a letter that actually was recently discovered. It was to Molly to pass on to the family she lived with. He said, I want your room furnished better. I will send money on the 18th to pay your board. Tell Mrs. Vaughn I'll send her the money to fit your room by the first of the month. Then I will let her know just what I want and how I want it furnished. Good man. His princess. So Mama and her brother had left Memphis entirely, where Mama had set up another fashionable hair store in New York City. And I wish I knew why the brother seems to have stayed home while Molly didn't. And all I can think of is maybe there were more choices for a boy child. He ended up in Columbia University eventually, and he ultimately got a law degree. So he's going to school at this point, I assure you, four years younger than Molly, but he is not boarded out. And I don't fully know why he got to stay home. I had assumed that it was because he had more educational opportunities, especially once they moved to New York. Hmm. There's more opportunities for him. And what a perfect place for her mother to situate herself. You know, we're just going into the Gilded Age in New York City. That's a pretty good place for a fashionable hair salon, (laughs) I I would think. (laughs) That's true. So that's really all we have about Oberlin High School. She graduated in 1879 at the age of 16, like me, though she put her precociousness to better use, as we shall see. (laughs) 
And that summer, she went to go stay with her grandma, Aunt Liza, who lived on the street where Molly had grown up. And and maybe also Papa. He lived in Memphis, for sure, but this was not his mother. So I don't think he lived there, too. But anyway, back at the old stomping ground, Molly picked right back up with her German friends from 10 years ago as if she'd never left. And it could have been a glorious reunion. But... Yellow fever broke out for the second year in a row, and anyone who could afford to flee did. And with the sound of grief-stricken relatives screaming in the background, Molly's father put her onto a train headed for New York City. And people were not just fleeing temporarily. They were pulling up stakes and getting the heck out of this pestilence for good. The year before, 47,000 people had lived there. And of those people, almost 20,000 didn't flee. They didn't leave. And 17,000 of them got yellow fever. I mean, that's not a good record at all. There were 5,000 deaths from the previous year. So when it started up again, everyone started to panic. The price of water went up to astronomical levels. People were hoarding food. There was, you know, running and panic in the streets. There were protests at the train station. How come you get to leave? You're leaving us all here to die and that kind of thing. And oh my gosh, the terror in everyone's hearts, even though this year wasn't going to be as bad as the previous year, it was still bad. And no one knew what was going to happen. And Papa, fearless and bold as he was, stood there at the train station and bought real estate for pennies on the dollar. People said he was a fool. Memphis was dead. It was never coming back. In fact, at the end of this year, the state pulled the city charter. So Memphis was actually gone and dead officially. And here he had just spent every dollar he had on a ridiculous gamble. Well, dear listeners, as Papa became the first black multimillionaire in the United States, I think we can safely say his instincts were correct. But (laughs) this is not a show about Papa. So um, we're just going to say Mary Church's dad became a key citizen of Memphis, Tennessee. He basically um, was the key to them being a phoenix that rose from the ashes. He ran everything from hotels to brothels and everything in between. He had a lot of businesses in town. On his headstone is chiseled the following sentence. His life is woven into the history of Memphis. There you go. Mary, as we'll now start to call her as she is graduated from high school, wrote to her father about her desire to continue her education in the same town at Oberlin College. Oberlin College was another massive bubble to grow up in. It opened in 1833 with 29 men and 15 women students. That is radical. They had a long tradition of co-education between the sexes. Not only that, they enrolled their first Black students two years later. So since 1835, this had been an integrated university, unprecedented in the United States. And the year before Molly was even born, the first Black woman earned her B.A. in education, the first in the United States, from Oberlin. And by 1900, one-third of all Black professionals in the United States had degrees from Oberlin. So not only did she want to go to college, rare enough, I suppose, for a lady person, Actually, we we need to start there. It was rare enough for a lady person, forget woman of color. She wanted to take the classical course known as the gentleman's course, four years of academic rigor, including Greek, our classic like marker. We have we've come across that in several of our episodes, including Maria Montessori. Like, (laughs) I don't know, learning Greek, that's a step too far. Isn't that funny that that's where the guideline is? Yeah. 
Well, Papa had to be convinced on this one. That's for sure. Can't you just take the two-year path, the women's path? But she didn't want to. And she had to confront friends who told her that an education like that would make her unmarriable. (laughs) Uh, Where are you going to find a colored man that speaks Greek, is what they said to her. She just rolled her eyes. Well, Papa found out that it did cost more, but that few women ever even tried it, and that only two women of color had ever before achieved it. And by return of post, Papa said, stay in college as long as you like. I'll pay for it. He was proud. Mm-hmm. He was proud of all she'd achieved. He, he'd he never been allowed in a school building as a child. And here was his daughter competing with white men in one of the highest institutes of learning in the United States. During her freshman year, she was invited to the inauguration of James Garfield of Ohio by the wife of Senator Bruce from Mississippi, the only colored man in the Senate. He was a friend of Papa's from way back. They were business associates. I think Papa bought in bulk for an enterprise of Senator Bruce's. So they were business (laughs) colleagues. Uh, Mrs. Bruce took her everywhere in society, also to the inaugural ball where the aforementioned John Philip Sousa and his band were playing. Yes. (laughs) Uh, She met everyone who was anyone by chance, met the great Frederick Douglass while out on a walk. Luckily, she was with someone that knew him because by the standards of the day, she couldn't go up to him and say, oh my God, it's Frederick Douglass. Everyone was very decorous (laughs) and she was introduced properly. And that was to be a friendship that would last the rest of his life. Mary loved college. She loved learning. She had said, learning my lessons as well as I could was sort of an indoor sport with me. (laughs) I get it, girl. (laughs) I do. She was very popular, though, in addition to top grades, ruining up the grade curve, which no one held against her. She was invited to exclusive literary societies that she credits for her ability to do public speaking from this era of her life, debate club, choir. She was an editor of the college newspaper. She was, societally speaking, invited to parties, invited to excursions, and she wrote in her autobiography that, quote, outward manifestations of prejudice would not have been tolerated by those in authority at the time at Oberlin. By 1940, when her autobiography was written, that was no longer the case. But during her years of study there, and I quote her again, I was certain of a welcome wherever I went. The newspaper that she had been an editor for, the Oberlin Review, I kind of nerded out a little bit because that's still the paper and I'll link you up online. But It was, is that weird? I'm like reading the Oberlin Review thinking, oh my gosh, she worked for this paper. How many years ago? (laughs) I'm like all tingly right now. (laughs) That Oberlin seems to have a long reaching um, finger toward history. It's it's kind of like continuity land. Mm -hmm. It's still a very progressive school. (laughs) They have an albino squirrel as their mascot. Although the teams were the yo men and the yo women. Apparently, there's a population of white albino squirrels on campus. And if you see one, you'll have luck for the rest of the day. Man, go out with your binoculars before a test. I know, right? (laughs) Well, the only real overt instance of racism that she felt she was subject to at college was the botched election for class poet her junior year. So she was a great writer of poetry that was much admired by all. And 
a white man who, as far as she's concerned, never wrote a poem in his life, was put up against her and voted in. And she felt like that was because she was a person of color. So we're seeing Shades of Mary in the future. Here's another one. In her senior year, Mary helped form the Oberlin Young Women's Missionary Society. It was her and two other women who wrote the Constitution for this new organization. So that's just a little foreshadowing, I think. So Oberlin itself might have had some kind of utopian viewpoint toward race relations, but the world at large, not so much. Several times during her college career, Mary had aced interviews for various summer jobs, mostly for companions or um, secretaries, only to be rejected once the employers found out that she was, quote, colored. Otherwise, they were very happy to have had her. It was a taste of the outside world that was not welcome, for sure. And it was a relief to head back to the cocoon of college. Honestly, I think a lot of us feel that way about college. It's (laughs) it's our little nest where we can lurk and be safe until we're forced to fly. So college was definitely that for her. Yeah, she had said it would be difficult for a colored girl to go through a white school with fewer unpleasant experiences than I had. So she knew what was out there and she knew, I think she knew from a very young age, the privilege that she had. I think she recognized it. Neither of her parents came to her college graduation, which I find so very strange. I don't know what to think about that. Though Mama sent a glorious black dress, as that was the tradition. But that's no substitute for your parent coming. So strange. At her graduation, 20-year-old Mary Eliza Church earned her BA degree in classics from the Department of Philosophy and the Arts. She and two other African-American women got their degrees that year. When she had started school in her freshman class, there were 50 men and 15 women. When she graduated, only 27 men and 14 women graduated. So the percentage of men that are dropping out of college is greater. Obviously, they have more opportunities. They probably Mm. went to work for Papa. But 14 women in her class graduated, and three of them were Black students. The men could have moved on to places like Harvard, though, and that was not an option open to women. So I'm not sure they just dropped out. They probably moved on up in a way that the glass ceiling prevented them from doing. Yeah, no kidding. She also spoke at her graduation. She had written an essay called The Mission of Tyranny. And she said, from evil can come good as from the darkness of the night, the light of the sun. So she's very optimistic. Well, so we're done. We're done with college. And Papa sent a message to her that she was to come home to live with him in Memphis in his giant new house to be his hostess since he liked to entertain. Mary obviously wanted more out of life, but she did owe him after all her education. So there she went and did the usual, uh, you know, unmarried female relative, greet people at the door, Mm -hmm. arrange the servants, take care of the party invitation. But less than a year later, Papa announced he was getting married again to an old friend of Mary's mother's who had once given Mary piano lessons. (laughs) But she liked her. Mary did. She approved of her, who Mama liked and approved of. Much to society's surprise and disgruntlement, there was no drama. I know. (laughs) Except for his violent temper, I really love this family. I think they're co-parenting really well. In an age where they have no role models for it. I also think it helped that Mama was a self-made woman and had her Mm -hmm. own enterprise and was not dependent on him. Right. 
Right. He, he had no power over her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I found it curious that even though her mother was a working mom, he wanted none of that for Mary. He wanted her to have the society life. He wanted the girl he'd raised as like a princess, you know, to do the traditional society role. It's weird to me that he wouldn't think that she would get a job when her mother worked. Well, maybe that's why he left the mother in the first place. (laughs) He wanted her, his daughter, to be a jewel in his crown in the glory of society. He did not want her to take a job teaching, which was really the role she could have taken. He said she'd just be taking the bread out of the mouth of someone who actually needed the job. Ladies, said Papa, did not work. Then what was all this? All this education, all this work. Papa, what was this? If not to fit me for a job, it was for polish, he said, refinement, sticking it to the establishment, which is not the way he put it, but (laughs) they weren't in agreement about the proper role for an educated woman in society. And Mary decided to take matters into her own hands. She went behind his back and looked for a teaching job, and she accepted one at Wilberforce College in Wilberforce, Ohio. Go Bulldogs. It was actually the first private black college in the United States. So she took a teaching job there, and she was out of Memphis again. And I'm sorry to say, I'm sorry, Wilberforce. I love you. I really think you're awesome. But I think she was treated like absolute crap for her $40 a month. It was $1,000 a month now, so she's, you know, functionally making $12,000 modern a year, had to teach five different subjects, two of which she had to study at night just to keep ahead of her students because she'd never taken it before. She had oppressive administrative duties, too. I think they took advantage of her, honestly, but Mary was actually in heaven. She was busy and challenged, and that's just what she wanted. So I can just step out with my little opinion about how they were treating her. The The main downside was Papa's absolute refusal to write to her. He was so angry. She had left Mama's, this, you know, she visited up in New York City, left Mama's to head straight to work and never came back home. She thought it was better to ask for forgiveness than permission. <laughs> Narrator voice, it wasn't. All year, Mary sent letters, nothing, Christmas presents, nothing. I hear I have a new baby brother. Congratulations. Nothing. But at the end of the first year, it was summer break and she had to go somewhere. So she decided to be brave and sent a telegram to her dad and said that she was coming to Memphis. So the whole way down from Ohio, you know, is he going to let me even stay at his house? Will he talk to me? But much to her delight, Papa met her at the train station when she arrived. At five in the morning. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, he meant it. So his time out kind of did him a lot of good. Over the course of that summer, they must have worked it out. Uh, Her philosophy, her kind of starting point for her argument is, I want to be a credit to my race and you have fitted me to do it. It would be a crime against our people not to let me flex my muscles. And he finally came around. Well, a wealthy woman who was a patron of Wilberforce invited Mary to go to Europe with her, down through Turkey and into Egypt even. Oh, it was so exciting. And just a once in a lifetime opportunity. This woman had itineraries and like fashion lists and everything already. Papa agreed, as usual, to foot the bill. You could always count on him for extravagant candy money and pink dress for Egypt money. (laughs) Well, he had to be thrilled about this because, you know, the grand tour was something that ladies did. 
he, yeah, he's throwing all kinds of money at her. <laughs> so an unprecedented opportunity had just landed in Mary's lap. But alas, another one came in the mail. A prestigious and personalized offer from the Board of Education in Washington, D.C. to teach in the colored high school there. Mary didn't know what to do. The path she chose is going to change her life right now. It was very stressful. She didn't know which way to And Papa finally tipped the balance. He said, okay, if you decide to go teach, then I myself will take you abroad when your first year's over. I myself will chaperone you. You will go. Don't worry. You're not losing out on Europe Mm -hmm. if you choose to teach, which is big for him. Because think about how much he did not want her to take a job. And now here he is, Mm -hmm. you know. In just months. I mean, he had this change of heart in just a very short period of time. I l- kind of love it when people say, okay, I screwed up. Yeah. Let me, yeah. let me do, be- I know better, so I'll do better. And that's a great example of it. So she did. So she went to Washington, D.C. and took up a position in the Latin department at the high school. How many of you took Latin in school? I'm interested to know. My daughter's taking it in college. It's her foreign language. I know, but she took French in high school and she hated it. So she thought she'd take Latin in college. (laughs) I think Catholic schools still teach Latin. Correct me if I'm wrong. Anyway, the head of the department, see, there's so many people taking Latin, you need more than one teacher. That's right. Uh, He was a black Harvard graduate named Robert Terrell. A quick word on the pronunciation. I have to tell you, people come down on both sides. But the filmers of several documentaries have come down on the side of Terrell. So you'll hear Terrell. I imagine people will know to whom you refer, but they pronounced it Terrell. So that is how we will proceed. And I quote Mary herself, never since the dawn of creation did two teachers of the same subject get along more harmoniously. Robert was five years younger than Molly, and he was from Virginia. His past is really quite fuzzy. He may or may not have been born a slave. Um, I never really could find a consensus about that or his parentage. But he, like Molly, was very light-skinned. So obviously he came from some mixed race parentage. He did tell stories later that just kind of gave hints to his childhood. There was one about his grandmother who had beaten him till he was unconscious when he was four for killing two turkeys that he was taking care of. Now, to me, that says that she was the white master of a slave and the slave killed two of her turkeys and she beat him. That's just me reading between the lines on that one. He had a very spotty early education in the Washington, D.C. public schools. But at 16, he set off on his own. He went to Boston and got a job at the Dining Hall of Harvard. The students at the school got to know him. They saw his potential, his intellect, and they encouraged him to pursue his education. Within the next 10 years between taking the job in the dining hall, he somehow found the funds to attend Groton Academy, which is now called Lawrence Academy, which is just a little north of Boston, to fulfill his requirements so that he could attend Harvard. Then he got loans from friends. He worked and he saved. And in those 10 years, he finally graduated magna cum laude, thank you very much, from Harvard University on the same day that Mary graduated from Oberlin. Look at those pathways, would you? So there's one just absolutely scrabbling by your fingertips, by Mm -hmm. your broken fingernails up this great incline. Everything is ranged against you. And then on the other side, there's Papa and Mama clearing the obstacles before Molly, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the two ends of the spectrum. 
They certainly did not have a lot in common with regard to their upbringing or childhood or path to success. The thing that they had in common is that they were both about to get advanced degrees. While Robert was teaching French and Latin and geometry, he was also taking classes of his own at nearby Howard University working towards a law degree. Now, Mary didn't have to work as hard. To get a Master of Arts degree from Oberlin, you don't have to actually go to campus and take classes. You just have to work in your field for three years and, quote, sustain a good moral character and you will achieve a Master of Arts degree, which Mary did because her three years are up. Mr. Terrell was a little smitten. The buzz went around, a little wink-wink, little nudge-nudge, but they kept it all professional. He let some stuff leak out. Anytime anybody had a hard question, he would ask what Miss Church thought of it. You know, and soon to be like, before he even opened his mouth, a student would yell, why don't you ask Miss Church about it? And they would be like, ha, 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 behind their hands, you know. Yeah. So it could have turned into something, maybe, except for, just as promised, Papa arrived to escort his daughter abroad. For three months, he thought. They had a great time, didn't they? And Mary decided to stay and study abroad. And Papa agreed, but practically cried himself sick saying goodbye to her. Won't you just come? He said at the dock. And she said, my clothes are all in the hotel. Surely you don't want me to leave all my stuff behind. And he goes, I don't care. I'll buy you new stuff. Just come with me. No, it didn't work. She ended up staying. That's not how it works. (laughs) She stayed there for two years. England, France, Italy, Switzerland, Germany. She had had some letters of introduction from prominent people So her circle of friends and acquaintances really was able to grow and so telling to me that she moved about freely and had a life pretty free of prejudice unless she encountered fellow Americans. That's where the problems were. Mm -hmm. She encountered them right away, uh, right after he left. She was in Paris and she wasn't really much of a fan because the Americans that she would encounter were not as welcoming to her as she would have expected. She would try to explain to her European friends how it was back home for her, and they just wouldn't believe her. They just wouldn't. I don't understand. Mm -hmm. But simultaneously, they were willing to talk bad about Jewish people to her in the same way that white people in America would talk about colored people. Mm -hmm. And they didn't understand that that was this exact same thing. During her time in Europe, she fielded no less than four proposals from white men. Now, admittedly, the first one was strictly and openly for her money. Also, he was blind, not just colorblind. He was a musician and said to her quite openly, I hear you're American and therefore I assume you have a lot of money. You can be my patroness and uh, I will be your protector and together, you know, we can do great things, etc. Thumbs down, yo. (laughs) Thumbs down. In my country, she said, arranged marriages are, are not at all the thing. And when she was in Germany, there was another fellow who went so far as to send a letter to her father asking for her hand in marriage, and he was denied it. (laughs) He was a baron. He was nobility, and she liked him immensely. I don't think she was terribly upset by it in the big picture. I think she rolled with it. She's going to do what her father says. Although her father didn't think that he would be able to help his daughter live in the manner in which she'd become accustomed which tells you the difference between American royalty and European royalty in the pocketbooks. I don't know. No, she was not. It's hard to explain. She might have, she said, if she had been white, might have married who she called her German friend. 
He seemed genuinely fond of her. He had a high intellect. He was good looking. He was agreeable. But she just didn't think it was all worth what would be awaiting her. And she actually said that um, she didn't think that races should intermarry. And I think meeting all these suitors in Europe is really cementing that for her at this point, because she's certainly got her, you know, pick of the crop. She was also sort of shaken. Frederick Douglass had taken for his second wife a white woman and the vitriol that the black community had against him for doing that was sort of also bewildering to her. She is just like, we're fighting for all this equality. And then this one thing happened. So just to spare herself the, I I don't know, it was just another hill she did not want to climb, I think. It was just too much. So obviously, we do not know what was going on inside of her head. And we, as white women, have no idea what's happening even today with regard to that whole issue. So we wouldn't even presume to make a call on that. But ultimately, she and her father felt the same, that the best course of action for her would be to marry a man of color if she were to marry at all. After almost three years of touring around Europe, 27-year-old Mary Church headed home. Are you ever getting ready for work and trying to decide if today's a fashionable day or a comfortable day? Now, thanks to Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants, you don't have to decide. With Beta Brand, you never have to sacrifice comfort or function for style. Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants are super comfy, perfectly stretchy, and stay wrinkle-free. You can pack them in your suitcase for your business trip or, better yet, wear them on the airplane. Feel smug. They have all the style of dress pants with the stretch, fit, and feel of yoga pants in dozens of colors and patterns and cuts and styles like boot cut, straight leg, skinny, cropped, and more. They even have a pair with eight, yes, that's eight, pockets. And now they also offer premium denim with the same flexibility and comfort as yoga pants. Right now, our listeners can get 20% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com slash chicks. That's 20% off your first order at B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D dot com slash chicks. Millions of women agree. These are the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear to work. Go to betabrand.com slash chicks for 20% off. So the time had come for her to go back to her native land, and I would like to read a quote from her autobiography about how she felt about this. Definitely, it was um, mixed emotions. My heart ached when I thought about going home. Life had been so pleasant and profitable abroad where I could take advantage of any opportunity I desired without wondering whether a colored girl would be allowed to enjoy it or not and where I could secure accommodations in any hotel, boarding house, or private home in which I cared to live. I knew that when I returned home, I would face again the humiliations, discriminations, and hardships to which colored people are subjected to all over the United States. And then I thought of the rights, privileges, and immunities cold-bloodedly withheld from colored people in the United States, which practically everybody else is allowed to enjoy. The injustices and discriminations of many kinds rushed through my mind like a flood. I thought of the many fine women and men who, solely on account of their race, are debarred from certain pursuits and vocations in which they would like to engage, for which they're splendidly fitted by education and native ability, 
and in which they would achieve brilliant success if they only had a chance. Nevertheless, I loved the country in which I was born. So in that country that she loved so much, she went back to Washington and began teaching again at the same colored high school in Washington that she had been teaching at before. This time she's teaching Latin and German, which we know she's very fluent in. But her teaching partner had moved on. Professionally, he'd moved on, not personally. He'd been sending her letters the entire time. At the very beginning of her trip, they were like, how's the weather? Do you want to know what so-and-so did? And then they quickly escalated to, can you send me your picture? He's still keeping in contact with her. She's writing him back. So they have this writing relationship. And now they're not working together anymore. Robert had graduated from law school. He had opened a private practice. But more importantly, the newest president, Benjamin Harrison, had been integrating his administration, something really radical. And Robert got an appointed position in the Treasury Department. So he was big time now. Politics, law, education. He's getting in all the national black papers across the country. He's getting to be a big deal. So the lady, his students used to tease him about, quote, going to church every time he thought about her. He finally asked her to marry him. He had to send a letter, of course, to her father first, which he wrote on Treasury letterhead. Talk about knowing your audience. (laughs) Yeah. And this one, Papa granted. So she agreed as well. But just like before, a quandary. Another letter came inviting her to become the registrar at Oberlin College, a faculty position uh, that had never been seen before for a woman of color. It was prestige for her race, and that is very important to her. But as we talked about during the Maria Montessori podcast, married women were barred from teaching and barred from being on the faculty. It was an either or, and Mary chose to get married. On October 28, 1891, 28-year-old Mary married 34-year-old Robert in a ceremony in Papa's new fancy mansion living room in Memphis. The bride wore a French silk white gown. She had a white veil that was held in place by orange blossom wreath. And her four-and-a-half-year-old half-sister, Annette, carried the train and acted also as the ring bearer. What a sweet wedding. And how do we know all this? Because this wedding was written up in both the colored and white newspapers as a society event. Here's Mm -hmm. something that I think is very sad. They took off from their wedding to go visit Mama in New York City. And Mama had dressed up in clothing she would have worn and sat there at the time of the wedding and thought about them. Could Mama not come? Was there bad feelings? Papa's little new daughter called Mary's mother Mama Lou. They'd all stayed with her in New York. She wasn't invited? Um... I don't know how much traveling she did. When Mary was in Oberlin, Papa would visit her, but she rarely made the trip, I think once in the time she was in Ohio. For high school graduation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe she didn't had a problem with travel. I don't know. And I know she was in poor health later. Maybe this is where it all began. Mm-hmm. But um, I just felt very melancholy for Mama, you know, imagining her in her bedroom, putting on her nice clothes and going to sit in the living room and just closing mm-hmm. her eyes and thinking hard at the right time. I know. It is sad. And then can you imagine being her and reading all these articles in the paper, not only about what the wedding was like, but the press followed them kind of on this honeymoon trip they were taking. They would report about their wedding gifts, including the $1,000 diamond that came from Papa, which is worth about 30000 today, 
and the washstand set that came from Robert's parents. Mm. I know. I can't imagine that the press was very nice about that. They also got gifts from a grandson of a former president. So blow the raspberry at you. Who cares what the press thinks? (laughs) The life of a married woman proved to have its own challenges. Now it was expected of her to be the lady of the house and to run the house. Something that she hadn't done ever, really. She had that short time after college, but that was it. She hadn't even been living in a house like this since she was six. (laughs) So she had a challenge. Um, She took it on. She painted a few rooms in the house. She taught herself how to sew. And then she upholstered a couch. She made the Thanksgiving dinner and failed epically. (laughs) As a matter of fact, she tried to make this thing called Queen of Puddings. And in addition to the regular Thanksgiving dinner, guests were there and one of the female guests had to come back and tell her, oh, girl, you have a stove full of ashes. (laughs) The damper is facing the wrong way. So all that's happening is your oven's cooling off. This is never going to get cooked. And so the lady helped her out. And she finally got Thanksgiving dinner on the table at 10 p.m. And for the next decade, her loving husband called her either the queen or the queen of all puddings. (laughs) Uh, that's the kind of thing that could get a guy (laughs) punched in the face. That's the kind of thing that would get a guy no puddings for many years, you know? She actually had a cute nickname for him, too. She called him Berto, so as not to confuse him with her father, who's also a Robert. Berto and the Queen. I know. (laughs) My goodness. That sounds like it should be a novel. Well, college Um, women all over, they were society's joke subjects, I guess, about why you shouldn't marry one. You know, you'll starve to death. The house will be a foot deep in dust. She'll look like a scarecrow, you know. Mm-hmm. She was just determined to defy all these stereotypes, which she did not do at the first. No, she didn't. Now, she did use her brain a little bit. She began writing for an African-American ladies magazine, and she did a couple uh, travel talks about her time in Europe. So she's getting out in society. She's writing, and she's doing these social talks. She's getting her house in order. And something else that happened in the first five years of her marriage, she suffered three miscarriages. The first one was after only eight months of marriage. They struggled in addition to buy a house at all because most sellers refused to sell to, quote, coloreds. So ultimately, they found a friend who knew a man who had a secretary of color and thought he might be amenable to this bait and switch type of thing. So he was okay with it. The white man went and bought the house and then immediately sold it to them. And that's the kind of subterfuge they had to use to get a house in a nice neighborhood. Robert also took a couple hits at work. The administration changed. Grover Cleveland became president. And as new administrations do, they do some house cleaning. And that's when he lost his position at the Treasury. He had to go back into private practice of law. He also sold real estate. And he partnered up with his former Treasury Department boss. So a lot of ups and downs those first five years. But she was finally getting into the swing of things and feeling pretty proud of herself when her mother ran into Frederick Douglass's son one day. He's a grown man, by the way. He's not like a little boy. <laughs> so what's your daughter up to? He said. They were friends, Frederick Douglass and Frederick Douglass's son. She proudly explained to him that Mary finally got her mojo. She's canning. She's been putting up fruit all week. 
And Frederick Douglass's son let her have it. She is making a big mistake. She's burying herself in that house and she should work toward the betterment of her race. What has she been working toward all this time? There are few enough of us in a position to make any difference at all. And if she wastes her time on drudgery like that, all of us are going to be the loser. Her mother was taken aback, but she also is kind of like, I get it. I, I get it. And you know, nevertheless, someone has to do the dishes, my male friend. So Mama actually agreed, although she was um, not in the best of health, to take on a little bit more of that, the household running so that Mary could be free to follow what she'd been trained to do. Congress had just passed a resolution which allowed the commissioners of the District of Columbia to put three women, oh, clutch the pearls, onto the school board. And Mary went over to the boss in charge of the selection to recommend somebody. And she ended up being so opinionated and intelligent and clear and, you know, practically banging her fist on the table that the man nominated her for the position herself. And that's not what she went down there to do. (laughs) Uh, So it was four white men, two black men, two white women, and Mary. And she took this position so seriously. She had to deal with teacher promotions, appropriation of funds. She was willing to fight for the school system. Washington, D.C. didn't have a congressman, and still doesn't, by the way, to fight for them. They are... um, being taxed without representation even now. Did you guys know that? That there's no one in Congress that's in charge of of them. Um, So Mary called Washington, D.C. Congress's unwanted stepchild and felt like she had to fight some of the city's battles on the citizens' behalf. She's fighting for things like equal pay between black and white teachers. So she's active in local government, but there was a catalyst to catapult her into a larger arena. When she was 29... One of her childhood friends, a man named Tom Moss, who we talked about in the Ida B. Wells episode, he was lynched at his grocery store. His white rivals in business thought his success had made him uppity and they killed him for it. It was a case of nationwide infamy and made so much more acute for her because he had been a childhood friend of hers for real. They were personally acquainted, had hung out, had climbed trees, all of it. Mary and Frederick Douglass himself went directly to President Benjamin Harrison to ask him to come out with the power of the presidential office against this increasing racial violence in the country. And there was nothing but the sound of crickets. He sympathized, but nothing happened. Mary joined up with Ida B. Wells Barnett and worked on her anti-lynching campaigns, but on a local level, she decided to start a club kind of like she had had at college, except on a more serious scale. So she began the Colored Women's League in Washington. These organizations were all over the country. They had been around since abolitionist days. And at this point, there were women's groups all over the country, black and white, that were working towards women's suffrage. The purpose of Mary's organization was to advance opportunities for African-Americans. She felt that taking care of the people at home with education, with skills classes, with homemaking classes for girls would help elevate their community. She said, let us purify the atmosphere of our homes till it becomes so sweet that those who dwell in them will have a heritage more precious than great riches, more to be desired than silver or gold. If that sounds familiar, if you've listened to our Jane Adams episode, she had very similar sentiments. Let's start in the home and work outward. Yeah, interesting. 
As far as Mary was concerned, she looked around Washington, D.C. and said to herself, this is the highest concentration of college-educated colored women in the country, and um, we can make a difference. Ultimately, they joined with a similar club that had been made in uh, Boston and formed a national organization. But they started on very practical terms, night schools for women kindergartens, daycares, the theme of their organization was lifting as we climb. We've heard that before. That was the same organization that helped bring Madam C.J. Walker, episode 68, out of poverty so that she could begin her company and help and do the same thing for others. So you take care of one person and you elevate them and you get them going and that person can reach down and pull the next one up. So the lifting as we climb, which was the motto of the National Association of Colored Women, was actually written by Mary. That was her idea. She was the first president. Through this work, Mary Terrell met and was known by most of the prominent black leaders in America. And I would go on to say most black women in America, leaders or not. Mm -hmm. She is pretty famous. She had been going to the meetings of the National Women's Suffrage Association for years and sitting in the audience. And during one of such conferences, Mary was moved to stand up after a speech and say out loud in the meeting, as a colored woman, I hope this association will include in the resolution the injustices of various kinds of which colored people are the victims. Okay, so the room stopped like those old E.F. Hutton commercials. <laughs> if you remember that, <laughs> my broker's E.F. Hutton and everyone shuts up in a crowded room. Uh, showing my age. Um, Susan B. Anthony, rather than get mad, invited her up. Why don't we write that out? Let's include it for the resolution committee to discuss just as if Mary Terrell were a member. Thus, she began her association with prominent white workers for social justice and suffrage. We talked about this during the Elizabeth Cady Stanton episode. That was a long time ago. So let me just give you a brief overview of what's happening in women's suffrage at this point. When the spark was first lit for women's suffrage back in 1848, this is pre-Civil War, black and white men and women were all working together. They were all abolitionists, as well as working to get equal rights for all. Once abolition happened after the Civil War, there was this group of people that said, now what? Part of the group branched off and said, I think we need to get the vote for black men first. Once we get that vote, we can get the vote for women. And the other group said, well, why aren't we all in? All in or nothing. And the group split and the all in or nothings began to focus more on women's suffrage than anything else. So that's what the groups are doing at this point. So there's this weird Venn diagram. On one side, there's the black vote. And the other side, it's the woman's vote. And in the middle, there's black women. Whose side should they be on? That put them in a very awkward position. And the way that women's suffrage organizations were working were not to open up opportunities for Black women to join them. So it was a very precarious position. You will read a lot of really racist things about Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, and I won't get into them now, but I do ask that you read all about them and not just pull out quotes, because that's always dangerous. Well, given that the tart and justified response of Mary Terrell during the meeting that I hope you are also going to include the injustices that have been perpetuated mm -hmm. on people of color. Mm -hmm. And that Susan B. Anthony said functionally, you know, you're right. Come up here. 
help me include that in the resolution to present to the committee. So yes, there's all kinds of feelings and there's also all kinds of actions and they don't always match up. Mm -hmm. History's complicated. (laughs) So Mary's spectacular public speaking abilities, which she credits back to the Literary Society back in Oberlin, they led to her being recruited as a professional lecturer on a circuit called the Eastern Lyceum, where over the course of the next three decades, she gave speeches on lynching, women's suffrage, the progress of African Americans since emancipation, racial equality, crime, black culture, you name it. You name it. All this is going on in the background from now on. So we don't necessarily, we aren't going to cover all the speeches, but her husband's friends were horrified and unsupportive. There goes your happy home they said. And Mr. Terrell was so supportive of his wife. She even started to doubt herself because her friend said the same thing. Like, how can you leave your house? How can you not take care of your husband and be so unwomanly as to go out and speak on a lecture tour? She was about ready to give up, I think, just due to the fact that there wasn't that much support. Her husband actually was the one that convinced her. He said, not many women get the chance to make a difference. My queen of puddings. <laughs> oh, Puerto. <laughs> Wouldn't it be a shame to squander your opportunity just because of a little fear? By the way, I want to add on also that he was a early supporter of women's suffrage from back in his college days. And as he got to know his wife's friends a little more, he loved it. When some dude tried to engage one of his wife's friends on a suffrage debate, and (laughs) he said that he, in his mind, every time something like that erupted, would try to guess the size of the grease spot that was going to be left of that guy when they were done with him. (laughs) So I um, really like him. I do too. He seems like someone I can hang out with. But she gave him credit for sort of forcing her to get on out there on stage. You know, what if I don't have anything interesting to say? She said, and he would roll his eyes. You do. Just stop with the objections. Just go. And so she did. And she was really considered a very inspirational speaker. Now, she's just not talking to black organizations. She's talking to white organizations, too. And they're all loving what she has to say. She's really firing them up. She's also doing writing on the side. So she's being a lecturer. She's writing articles for mostly black publications, although some white. And she wrote under the pseudonym Euphemia Kirk. Kirk in Scottish means church. Cute. Very cute. She um, didn't do that for very long, um, but I think she felt like, "Mm, let's not tie this to myself quite yet. (laughs) Right, right. Let's see how this goes before I uh, let people know who's writing these. So she was invited by Susan B. Anthony herself to give a speech at the National Women's Suffrage Association called The Progress and Problems of Colored Women on the 50th anniversary of the very famous first conference of women's suffrage activists in Seneca Falls. This is 1898. And we will provide you with the text. We'll give you a link. And she began this way. The slaves were liberated less than 40 years ago, penniless and ignorant, with neither shelter nor food. So great was their thirst for knowledge, and so Herculean were their efforts to secure it, that there are today hundreds of Negroes, many of them women, who are graduates, some of them having taken degrees from the best institutions of the land. With this increase of wisdom, there has sprung up in the hearts of colored women an ardent desire to do good in the world. She goes on to list the expansive organizations that have been created for the improvement of the, quote, colored race and ends this way. 
And so, lifting as we climb, onward and upward we go, struggling and striving and hoping that the buds and blossoms of our desires will burst into glorious fruition with courage born of success, achieved in the past, with a keen sense of responsibility, which we shall continue to assume, we look forward to a future with promise and with hope, seeking no favors because of our color, nor patronage because of our needs. We knock at the bar of justice, asking for an equal chance. To an absolutely enthusiastic response by the audience who practically could not stop clapping. And Susan B. Anthony came out on stage and smiled at everyone and said, I'm sure you are all thrilled at what you have just witnessed. And they were. And I think we should leave her standing on the stage, basking in the glory of her speech, of people appreciating the message she has. We're going to have to break this episode up into two parts. So when we come back the next time, we will talk about her life as a civil rights activist, as a suffragist, and about her personal life. There's a lot to unpack. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. You can join us on the Facebook group. All you do is find us on Facebook, The History Chicks, and click the button at the top of the page that says Join Group. That seems to be where the action is. Right now, there are discussions going about historical fashion, ancestry, and we have every Tuesday a feature called Toot Your Own Horn Tuesday, where if you make a cake, have a baby, take a trip, write a book, get up out of bed, any achievement you would like to celebrate, we are all there for you. So don't forget to join us there. There will be a Pinterest board for Mary Terrell, ready to go as soon as I hit publish. The song in the middle is Four Moments Musico, Opus 84, by Moritz Moskowski. And the end song today is called My Station by Broken Poets. When you're out there where that highway ends When the meaning's gone and the truth begins You can learn some things from the messages from the ones that came before you You can close your eyes while you're listening You can see the sky while the birds sing You can lose yourself in your memories From the way it was before So I'm leaving my station for a chance to be happy, cause here I'm fading. You can numb yourself when your heart's afraid. You've always known it 
Before, yeah. So I'm late. 